Welcome to Culture Matters, a podcast exploring the intersection of faith and culture. This is Adam Griffin, and I'm here with my co-host, the Adam Hawkins. Adam, how are you today, buddy? I'm doing great, man. How are you? I'm really, really good. I'm excited about our topic today. Let me jump into it by asking you this, Adam. Sure. If you were, let's say, in a terrible situation here in America, and your family was in danger, like your family, there's somebody coming to harm your family tomorrow if you don't get out tonight. And we had to move you to a country. We had to move you to a country where you do not speak the language. You lose your occupation and all your certifications, and you were gonna have to start all over again. What would be some of your first concerns? What would be top of mind for you? Uh, Top of mind would be uh, taking care of my family, certainly. So safety, obviously. Yeah, safety. Uh, Especially if somebody's coming to get me. Yeah. Um, Second. So, but yeah, it would all it would all revolve around my family and how to take care of them, how to provide for them, what am I going to do next? Those kind of things. Yeah, and it would be pretty difficult, I would think, starting over a new culture where you like you're a lawyer, you pass the bar exam. Well, not anymore. You you don't have yeah. your bar exam anymore. I I think there would be such a swimming set of emotions for me, and most of them may be based around fear. But I'd sure hope that at that moment I can trust in the Lord, and then what we're going to talk about today that there would be a people of God who'd be willing to. Uh, be part of the welcoming force, be part of befriending force that would be welcoming me into a culture, understanding what I had been through, which was surely traumatic. And that may not be every refugee story, but today we're talking through uh, refugees. And we're going to hear a couple stories from some refugees that are local here in Dallas. And then we're going to hear from uh, some of my dear friends, Alex Laywell and Joshua Samuels, who've worked with refugees now full-time for a while. My name is Manar Karchu, and I'm from Damascus, Syria. We were all asked what you want to be when you grow up probably a million times during our childhood. But do you remember what you wanted to be? Are you your dream doctor, writer, or engineer? I remember being asked this question when I was 12 years old, and the only answer that came to my mind is, I want to be safe. I remember seeing a picture of some kind of a civil war or something on TV and asking my father if this will ever happen to us. He laughed at how silly the question was and told me not to worry. I also remember later asking him another question. On the night the city my mom used to teach in was bombed, I asked my father if he remembers how he lied to me about the picture. And he said, I didn't lie, this is nothing like that picture. This is worse. My little brother at that time had some problems with his jaw that needed surgery, but my parents couldn't do anything because it was not safe to go outside. 
I remember how we ate the same dish for a week because we couldn't go outside to get anything else or we would have ended up in God knows where. The first night we slept at our own house after being trapped at my aunt's for nine days. That was the night my cousin, who was doing his mandatory military service at the Syrian-Iraqi border, went missing. Two days later, we knew that he and everyone in his unit were dead. Now I want you all to imagine my father was coming home from his nephew's funeral when a sniper started shooting at him for no reason. And if my father didn't start his, his car in time and driven away, he would have died that day too. My family had this bag next to the door that we were not allowed to move for some reason. I only found out later that my mom had put, had put our papers and passports there in case we had to run. Tanks everywhere, broken glass and blood in the street, sleeping all in one room thinking we would be safe there, not going to school, my four-year-old brother crying at night, and the image of the tank that faced us on our way to Jordan, and my thinking that this is where I'll die, not in my home, but also not somewhere safe. All these images will haunt me forever. When I left to Jordan, I was thrilled. I mean, no more sleepless nights, no more shooting, and no more air bombs and missiles. But more importantly, no more electric cuts, so I can still watch my favorite TV show. I remember one time shortly after we moved to Jordan, someone had some fireworks in a field next to us. We were asleep. But I remember how I flipped out of bed, carried my little brother, and held my sister's hand, ran to my parents' room as fast as I could, thinking that the war had followed us there. And as the image of going home faded away, a new challenge appeared. Being a Syrian refugee in Jordan was not easy, and the process of starting from zero started to trouble me more and more. But I mean, tanks and blood didn't stop me, and neither would a few strict rules and mean comments. I was always strong on top of my class and willing to help other people. And after spending five years in Jordan, and because of my brother's health, health condition, where we, we were blessed enough to be in Dallas, Texas within only six months from the start of the interviews. And here I am today sharing my story, and I'm happy to say that I finally become what I wanted. I'm happy to say that now I am safe. Here in the studio with me today are two men that I really appreciate, have taught me so much when it comes to understanding life as a refugee and what it looks like for a church to bless them. So first with us today is Alex. Alex, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Alex, you work for the IRC. Can you tell us real quick, real briefly, what is the IRC and what do you do there? Sure. The IRC is the International Rescue Committee. Uh, quick, interesting fact, it was actually founded in 1933 by Albert Einstein and has grown quite a bit since then. So right now, uh, the IRC acts as a global humanitarian aid organization. We operate in about 40 different countries and 24 U.S. cities. So in the U.S., we act as a refugee resettlement agency. And at the IRC Dallas office, I am uh, the volunteer and youth services coordinator. Awesome. And then we're also in the studio today with my dear friend, Joshua Samuels. Joshua, how you doing today, buddy? What's up, Adam? I'm good. Good. I'm so glad you're here. You've been working with refugees here in Dallas for several years now. Can you give us just a little bit of your background in working with refugees here in the city? Yeah, for sure. Um, 
So some of what I do right now is uh, is, is consult for nonprofits and churches that want to have an impact in their city locally and specifically to, to uh, provide services and support to refugee populations. Uh, and so helping churches and nonprofits develop programs um, that, that serve the refugee populations that are right here in our city. That's awesome. I love the work you guys do. I know that uh, my access to your knowledge bank has made such a difference for our church as we've tried to get started in Dallas. And I know it's uh, not every neighborhood is flooded with refugees, but certainly where we, the three of us live right now, there are a ton of opportunities to be a uh, a loving neighbor to people that are refugees. So we've used that word a lot already, refugees. We've heard some refugee stories. I think it might be helpful just to start there. What is the difference, Alex, between a refugee and somebody that's a migrant or somebody that's immigrated? Or how would you just define refugee? So the UN defines a refugee as someone that is outside of his or her country of origin and unable to or unwilling to return due to a well-founded fear of persecution, which looks like race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or social group. So that's a refugee. Uh, A lot of people say migrant a lot of the times, which is really kind of a broad term that actually doesn't have a, a legal definition. And so migrant can be really anyone that is moving from one country to another, and the reasons for that are many. And so it's always really important to make that distinction. That's excellent. Yeah, I think that's interesting. A point I think that we need to double down on is just that, that refugee is actually, it has a legal definition. It has some weight to it. It's not, um, I think- It's a status. It's a status. I think many times when people hear the word refugee, they're not distinguishing between um, somebody who- you know, is here and here for the reasons we just heard, and maybe somebody's just trying to move or look for work or something like that. It's a very different uh, yeah. and very defined status. Well, let me ask you this, Adam. Why why spend an episode on this? Why would uh, our podcast that talks about culture and faith, why do you think it's important to have an episode speaking about refugees? There's a lot of reasons. Um, the first is, maybe the first would be spiritual or, or theological, and that is... Um, one, uh, uh, that we see all people as created in the image of God. Um, and I think you, if you just start there, if you just start that we're all sort of um, imbued with a, 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 a dignity and worth that comes not from what we do or where we live or where we were born, but from our creator, uh, then I think there's just um, some ways that our, our thoughts about the world should be shaped, our actions, our affiliations, etc. cetera. Uh, the second thing I would say is um, the Bible is replete with stories of caring for the sojourner, of caring for our neighbor, of caring for the vulnerable. Uh, and, um, I, you know, I, you could go on and on about that, but certainly refugee would fit that bill. Yeah. Certainly. Well, so. let me ask you about that, Joshua. That's a great jumping off point. We know the Lord talks a lot in the scripture about love for the foreigner and love for the refugee. Knowing what you know about the circumstances a lot of these people have come from, why do you think the Lord might put it on the church, put it on his people to say, hey, these people deserve your attention, your love, your affection, and your care? What's going on with people that are refugees that would would uh, initiate or instigate a church to get involved? Yeah, for sure. And I think it's interesting that you point out that <clears throat> throughout scripture, we see that God seems to have this really big place in his heart for vulnerable people. Yes. Um, so for the orphan, for the widow, and then for the for the sojourner, 
um, and, and we can put refugee in that category. For someone who's in a country outside of their own, there's a special vulnerability that comes with that, with not knowing the language, with not knowing how systems work there. And so it, it, what we get the opportunity to do as a church is to step into God's heart for those who are vulnerable, right. and particularly for the refugee, and to meet them when they come to our city uh, and, and to be that friendly face that helps guide them through uh, just new systems and learning a new language and inviting them into a new community. Excellent. Let me take this to Alex then, because Alex, your job, you're part of a resettlement agency. And as an American who maybe isn't involved in refugees, should not just assume there's a government agency that does this. Why would a church need to do anything? And what's the difference then, because I've heard you speak about this, the difference between what a government agency is assigned to do and then what a refugee family maybe actually needs or mm-hmm. feels a need for. Right. So I guess one of the first things I'll, I'll say is there's there's kind of a distinction in that refugee resettlement is a federal program, but it's executed via nine organizations in the U.S. like the IRC. So we're one of nine of these that provide these surf- services through this partnership with the federal government, but they're they're pretty quick, and these guidelines are pretty strict. And so even when it comes to an apartment setup or when it comes to the services we provide when a family arrives, uh, you know, it's enrolling kids in school, it's finding them jobs, but there's so much, uh, so many gaps that there are that the agencies can't fulfill. And that's like really- what? What are those, what would be some examples of gaps? Uh, I think one of them is simply acculturation, mm-hmm. right? or even helping people, like Josh said, navigate systems. Uh, We do a DART orientation. We do all these things. But as you guys know, you've been to different countries, different places. These things take time. Yeah. You know, you don't master these things in in one day. And so we're giving these job readiness trainings. We're giving cultural orientations. And the U.S.'s system for resettlement is just a speedy process. And so people are really expected to be self-sufficient in about 180 days, which when you really think about it, is mind-blowingly quick. Yeah. And so, they're, like I was saying, just going over some of these simple things like public transportation or like job applications and just helping people to better understand the systems that they're in is crucial. Mm. That's I, excellent. I think the other piece to that, too, um, because we encourage churches to work in partnership with the resettlement agencies uh, and to value the things that the resettlement agencies do and bring to the table and, and lead this. But because of their limited time and resources, one of the things that resettlement agencies aren't able to do is to be a friend mm. to a new Excellent. refugee family or to all of their clients that they have. And this is something that we can step into as believers is to really invite people into community because everyone, when we move to a new country, our desire is for uh, to feel included and to feel loved. That's excellent. Yeah, I've heard uh, Frischa, one of your refugee friends, talked about how uh, she was assigned a person through the agency, but that person was in no way a friend. Mm-hmm. And both how lonely that could be and being able to navigate. And I'm sure you guys have seen, too, the lack of that has led to some people being able to take advantage of refugees and without any protections in place or without being able to navigate paperwork. I got one of my refugee friends who came over from, he was a high school student, and couldn't understand the contract he had to sign with the high school to be able to get a TI-83 calculator. And he was like, this says I owe them $60. And we said, no, 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 you owe them money if you if you don't, if you lose this calculator, you owe them money. And it just could not cross that right. 
that boundary. Or we have a refugee friend who just in the last couple of weeks, he went to go buy a car and we found out the contract he signed, they're charging him 20% interest on his car loan. 20% interest. None of us would sign that. He's going to pay for that car over and over and over again. But he signed it because there are people taking advantage of the mm-hmm. fact that he doesn't understand the system and the language. And I have an opportunity as his friend to go, how can I advocate for him? But stop me there, Josh, because I don't also want to create a mentality where like churches need to come in as like this the savior for refugees. Refugees are these needy people who just need, and then we have these churches full of like uh, wealthy Americans who just need to swing in and rescue them. Help us recover here the personhood of refugees. Tell yeah, me about sure. that. I think the longer that I've worked with uh, with our refugee friends and neighbors here in Dallas, the more and more I'm convinced that part of the reason that God has allowed refugees to be amongst us and to live in our city uh, is to teach us in the American church some lessons that maybe we've missed along the way. Um, So one of those being like hospitality. A lot of my refugee friends uh, practice a hospitality that is rich and full. And I think we can learn as the church, we can learn from that. And then a number of the refugees that come and make another home in Dallas are Christians, are believers who have been um, persecuted and their faith has been tested in ways that mine never has. And so there's so many things that I can learn from the experience of these these refugees that are making a new home in this city. Uh, And so I think there's a lot that we can learn. And so going into these relationships, not just to help and not just to go in as a a savior, that's not our role at all, Um, but to go in and to be able to, uh, to be learners at the same time that we teach. And we, we get to work with a lot of faith-based partners, which is awesome. And one of the best things we see is people who have that learner's mindset, like Joshua was saying, people that come in and say, hey, we see what's going on here. We don't claim to be the experts. Let us know where we fit into this picture. Whereas I think sometimes, whether it's volunteers, corporate partners, or faith-based organizations, they come in and say, here's our terms. This is what we want to do. And it's kind of like, this isn't necessarily what these people need. Yeah. Yeah. Um, speaking of that and speaking of some of the, you guys have already spoken to some of this, but uh, what are the main challenges that you see? And, and let's just bring it locally to here in Dallas. What are some of the main challenges you see as refugees seek to find a, a home here? Yeah, one of the main ones, uh, almost always, is just learning English mm. and the need. So, so refugees come from a number of different backgrounds, and no story is the same. Um, so there's different levels of English proficiency when refugees move here. But almost always, there's a need for a greater level of English in order to find community, to find a good job uh, for kids to do well in school. So that's one big need. Mm. Yeah, I would echo that as well. We actually... Uh, about two summers ago, put together this survey and we're trying to figure out some different gaps in programming and we're asking people what was the biggest need and they all typically all said English. And we were like, well, mm. probably should have phrased that question differently to get to some other matters. <laughs> but of course, that was a main priority for so many people. And right after that came community, and just having friends to help them navigate uh, their new surroundings. My name is Frishta Nasari from Ghazni, Afghanistan. I had disappointed my parents before I had taken my first breath. When I was born in Ghazni, Afghanistan in 1999, they wanted a boy. My family comes from a long line of Hazara farmers, and we lived in a simple home surrounded by snow-capped mountains 
and flowing springs, as our ancestors had for hundreds of years. Ghazni was heavenly, but years of conflict had made it a very dangerous place to grow up in. The sounds of rockets and guns fill my memories for as long as I, as I can remember. In a country fractured by war and ethnic violence, I never had a chance at a positive future. At a young age, I struggled to understand how I could have already failed. But as I grew older, I started noticing the way women were treated as second-class citizens. By the time I was 10 years old, my parents began receiving proposals from families for their adult sons. I dreamed of a different story. Thankfully, my father allowed me to attend school, sparking hope in my heart. He promised to always support my education, even when we didn't have enough money to send all of us to school. At that time in Afghanistan, only about 15% of girls were learning to read and write. This was the chance of a lifetime. School became my escape in Ghazni, and education was critical to saving my future. My school was the only one in the area. It was very small with 20 classrooms for all grade levels from 1 to 12. Windows were left broken, students sat on dirt floors, and there was absolutely no technology. But I loved it. With only a teacher, a blackboard, and our books, I learned how to read and write. I was sure if I kept working hard, I could control my own future. By seventh grade, I was at the top of my class and I started to dream of independence for myself and for all women in Ghazni. But over the following years, our neighborhood became more and more unsafe as the Taliban entered our city. Explosions were going off all around us. Children were being kidnapped and my parents began to worry that one day I would leave for school and never return. That winter, facing war and ethnic persecution, my family made a decision to flee to Sri Lanka. In Sri Lanka, the government prohibited refugees from working, resulting in tension over resources and overcrowding. For the first year and a half, I wasn't allowed to attend school until a humanitarian organization enrolled me in an international school. I had just begun to settle into my new environment when the government began to arrest refugee men for deportation. Soon after my father's arrest, my family was removed from our home. Without a place to live and with my father in detention, my mother worried about how we would take care of our four younger siblings. Though I was scared, I was determined to help my family survive. We were facing the threat of deportation to Afghanistan every day. We could not go back. My dreams of continuing my education became an afterthought. Despite being only 13, I walked miles in blazing heat every day to find a place for my family to live. With the help of a charity organization, I was eventually able to find a shelter. It wasn't much, but it made me proud to have been able to help. On rainy days, water would pour through the cracks on the ceiling onto the floor and we would uh, bunch up clothes and plastic to try to avoid getting wet. For the seven months while my father remained imprisoned, the government was increasing the number of deportations and the fear of being 
the next family to be deported was becoming more and more real. I had been making the three-hour journeys to United Nations office asking them to help and protect us and the few remaining families. We begged them to hide us from the police. Though it seemed hopeless, I did not stop advocating. One day I went to the UN several times for my family and the families of those who remained. As one of the few people who knew a little English, I was interpreting for everyone as best as I could. It was a chaotic scene as everyone tried to have their cases heard. Suddenly I felt dizzy and everything went black as I fell onto the floor. The UN employee felt pity on me, so she ordered glasses of milk for me and for the women who were with me. Even through all the challenges, I did not stop continuing to work and advocate on behalf of my family and those around me. Eventually, we received our UN interview, after which my father was released from prison and we were resettled to Dallas on May of 2016 by International Rescue Committee. When I returned to IRC office only two years later as the Dallas mayor's intern, I was determined to find a solution that could engage individuals with the refugee experience. I began to present at monthly information sessions and share my story from the very beginning. The persecution, fleeing Afghanistan, registering with the UN office, and the long resettlement process. In the fear and misconceptions, surrounding refugees and immigration today. I seek to tell people our stories so they can better understand and accept refugee communities. Have you guys seen a change in the attitude of, and this is a generalization, but I I think it's helpful. Has have you guys seen a change in the attitude of the will of willingness um, for people to help or be involved as the political climate has heated up around this? And really, I know it's a loaded question, but what I am what I'm saying is there there has been a conflation between the refugee uh, status and then like the you know. desire for immigration reform and things like that, which is, sure. I, I don't know that it's helpful to view those things in the same way. And so I know, you know, our campus uh, uh, in Plano, soon to be Citizens Church, we were really, we had a strong um, uh, refugee welcome team that would help welcome refugees and, and these kind of things. And then all of a sudden it seemed that there was Dallas I know resettled many, many refugee families, and it's, it almost seemed like it became harder to find refugees to welcome because part of the bans that were happening in terms of allowing people to come in and resettle. So maybe you could just speak to the political climate and then maybe also like the, I don't know, like ha- have you seen a willingness to, or, or a lack of willingness to step in and help? Yeah, I think it's a great question because I know, Alex, you can give us some literal numbers. There are a lot less... I do want to say clearly, there are still refugees coming to yes, America, yes. and there are people to help. So don't hear us saying like, so it, it, that problem's kind of resolved itself. No, there's an issue to help. But Alex, we are bringing in way less refugees than we used to, correct? For sure. Um, I think 2013 to about 2016 has really been some kind of golden years in the resettlement program, so to speak, and that the U.S. has been hitting 
the ceilings that it sets for itself. So every year the U.S. sets a ceiling, a number of refugees that it will take in, typically about 70,000. For the past, I guess since the program was formalized in 1980, the average has been about 95,000. But things have obviously changed um, in President Obama's last two uh, years. He set one at 85,000, and we essentially met that target. And then his, uh, as he exited, he set the target at 110,000, which we were all very excited about. But obviously there was an administration change. That ceiling was cut to 50,000. Mm-hmm. And then the following year, it was set at about 45,000. And that ceiling doesn't even mean that we will necessarily hit that target. So when it was 45,000, we actually only brought in a little over 22,000 people. And then finally this year, the ceiling is actually at 30,000, which we are behind in again. So tell me this, because I'll hear from people that are not familiar with refugee populations and just maybe capture little tidbits from the news. And they think, oh, we, I don't want to welcome terrorists into our country. I don't want to welcome people from terrorist countries. Tell me for just a second, maybe you guys can both answer this, about the vetting process that somebody goes through before they come and the history of, of terrorism from refugees in America. I think one of the things to note is that the refugee resettlement program in the U.S. Uh, started in 1980, so it's about 40 years old, mm-hmm. and and it hasn't been a uh, it hasn't been charged politically in mm-hmm. its history. It's been a program that Republican or Democratic uh, president has taken the recommendations from resettlement agencies at a national level and just said, if this is what our country can handle, uh, we're going to go ahead with this. Um, and I think what's been disappointing to me is to see how political it's become and then how many Christians have been ca- caught up in that and then decided that uh, because of their political views, uh, welcoming refugees isn't something that's included in their faith mandate. Yeah. Well, to Adam's point, too, that some of the attitude changed towards it because it's become political, that a church might say, I don't want to touch it, it's too hot, or a person might think, I don't want to be involved in that. That's certainly something, too. Alex, can you talk about what somebody goes through before they are welcomed into America? Sure. For starters, you have to receive refugee status from the United Nations High Commission on Refugees. Mm -hmm. So the UNHCR will actually refer these cases for resettlement. And so there's an RST, which is a resettlement support center. These are operated by different NGOs around the world. For instance, the IRC runs processing out of Asia, Southeast Asia primarily. And so this RST is going to work with these families to compile all of their documents and all of these important things. And those things are going to be screened not by NGOs, but by different entities from Uh, the U.S. government. So that means FBI, the State Department, Department of Homeland Security Center uh, for for National Counterterrorism, and so a number of different entities. And then, of course, these people are also going to have in-person interviews with people that are on the U.S. payroll that have in-country intelligence and special training, and they're going to have the ultimate say. So I think a lot of times people think that refugees aren't going through this intense vetting process. And they are. And there's a lot of agencies involved and it takes a long time for people to get cleared. Even after that, they're going to go through health screenings as well. So there's anti-refugee rhetoric out there that says people are bringing over this, these contagious diseases or Mm -hmm. what have you. Not the case. People will also go back to that resettlement support center for cultural orientation. And then they also sign a loan to come here. I think that's another uh, key factor that a lot of people don't understand is it's not a free ride over here. So one of the first families I ever worked with was a Congolese family that had fled to Mozambique, and they were a family of nine. And so when they 
flew over to the U.S. for resettlement. Before they came, they signed a an agreement with the IOM saying, we will pay back nine flights from Mozambique, which wow. you can imagine is a bit pricey. And those payments actually start six months after you get here. That's incredible. I think also to note, too, just, just to bring it to a personal level, is that rather than being terrorists, refugees are often running away from terrorists and running away from terror um, at at various levels. One of the first families that I met was a family from Afghanistan who served, uh, the husband served as a translator for the U.S. military um, in Afghanistan when the military pulled out and the Taliban put death threats on his life. So he received uh, a special refugee status in order to come here and fleeing persecution and death threats on his family. Yeah, that one of my neighbors is the same. He was he was a part of aiding the U.S. military in Afghanistan, and so someone literally came to him and said, "If you send your kids to school tomorrow, they'll be killed." They've identified you as somebody that's helped the U.S. We need to get you out. And he's here now with his nine kids. And when we talked to him about the fact that people here in America fear him because of where he came from, it's hard for him to compute. Like all I've ever done is help this country, and now there are people that there's a feeling like they don't want me here. And now he has a very menial job because of language barriers and starting over again. And it's very difficult for him to process. I've been happy to be a friend to him how I can, but help us, talking about making a personal, bring it to the ground. What can a church, what can Adam's Church, Citizens Church, what can my church, Eastside Community, the Village Church, other churches, what can churches do to actually help this process beyond just resettlement, but what can we do? I think a first step is definitely awareness because there's a lot of... um, there's a lot of misinformation out there on like who a refugee is. So a program like this is, is great. Um, but then there's also a lot of fear yeah. that comes from popular media and just the political commentary. Um, and so in order to combat uh, mis- misinformation and fear, I think what's really helpful is just correct information and then hearing real stories of real refugees who are real people who are friends and colleagues. Um, and I think when people can understand and wade through yeah, all the noise and hear real stories, then it begins to change someone's perspective. Yeah. What else can we do? There's physical needs that can be met too, right? Aren't there things that are true? Do you tell me like there's a stipend a refugee can receive when they get here, but that can be uh, reapportioned if they don't have to buy furniture, maybe, and somebody supplies the furniture for them. Or, right. Uh, just talk me through those kind of things. Yeah, that's that's a great point to make. Is the focus on in-kind donations, and that's something that we have at our office, and that some other organizations do really well. Because when you do go through the resettlement process, there's pretty minimal cash assistance, and it is going to a lot of other things. And as you guys know, rent is expensive, no matter where you are. And yeah. I don't personally have kids, but you know one of the biggest things that we give out and that's super important for us is diapers. Mm-hmm. Turns out those cost a small fortune. Who knew? <laughs> uh, not me. But you know we have a donation center, and we're giving people a lot of things that the that isn't mandated in the resettlement program. It's not in the federal guidelines to take care of some of these things. And there's some real great areas uh, where people can step up and say, "Hey, we can put together a, a drive for." kitchen items. That's also really, really popular among families that are coming over. And so there's so many needs that can be met ranging from socks and shoes to we've even had uh, people give us laptops with Rosetta Stone on them for people to practice English at home. So there's Mm. just just a lot of areas kind of regardless of where you are in life. You know, you, you may not have the means to give all these things, but if you're moving and you don't need all this stuff in your next apartment or your next home, then 
contact one of these agencies that, that has an in-kind donations unit. Yeah, I want to bring it from that. That's a really great information to a little bit of a, of a gospel idea. And I know, Alex, uh, uh, one of the things I love about your commitment to this is you, you live in Vickery and have for several years, which is a neighborhood in Dallas, which is a high refugee population. Right. Several people from Eastside have moved in there with the intention of befriending, coming alongside refugees who have moved here to America and using opportunities to teach English and meet uh, uh, physical needs in order to share the gospel with people that are coming here from all over the world. And we've seen uh, men and women come to know the Lord through the ministry that people there have in Vickery and in East Dallas. Adam, you're a pastor. What what are we missing I here am. on what are we missing here on meeting the spiritual needs? What's the opportunity for meeting the spiritual needs of refugees and how a church should feel the weight of that when you're talking about people from all over the world that are being moved into the cities around you? What's the obligation on the church to be a minister? Well, I think one one thing I'll just say about this is there's a, there's other, there's many different ways to answer that question, but I maybe a challenging way to answer that question is if you are a church that believes in missions. Yeah. To know that the nations are coming right into your backyard, right? They're yeah. here. They're coming here, and they're people who are in need, and they're vulnerable. And if you believe our greatest need is to hear uh, the good news of the gospel, um, then what an opportunity. What yeah. an opportunity. Now, so that's one thing, just to, as a challenge to say, if you're for missions, then this is a great opportunity to be for missions right here at home. I think the second piece, though, is to know um, that th- these these human beings are coming in and they are in a really vulnerable place and we have the opportunity to share the love of Christ. Yeah. We get to answer that question. Who is my neighbor? Like Jesus does, uh, everybody. Right. Yeah. Uh, and especially the vulnerable and, um, to, to minister to those who are in need to minister to those who, uh, might be despised is not that Christ's, um, heart for us did he mm-hmm. not come in in our in our moment of greatest need did he not choose us did he not descend to our level condescend to our level and say i'll take your hand i'll lift your face i'll tell you uh, i am your friend and even more than that i'm your savior we're not their savior so again i just want to i want to say that but we can be their friend and we yeah. can share the love of christ and in doing so we will have great opportunities to talk about where that love comes from why would we be compelled why would we f- be convicted to share that love well because we have a savior who first gave us that love yeah yeah and learn and learn from them and Uh, learn from them joshua you have a a heart for racial reconciliation you and i've had long talks about this and when we're talking about refugees coming into urban areas and knowing the different ethnic congregations of a community can be an important role a church can play in meeting the needs of the people around them. Talk to me about that. You've been involved with different ethnic congregations, a Burmese congregation, or other congregations, a East African congregation. How does that help when you're trying to not only uh, introduce a refugee into a new community, but help them come to know the Lord? Yeah, for sure. It's exciting to see in our city the vibrancy of the ethnic churches yeah. that exist in our city, um, from Congolese churches to Burmese churches to Bhutanese churches, and seeing them reach people inside their 
ethnic group and even outside of their ethnic group. And oftentimes when a refugee does come and they come from a Christian background or they claim a Christian faith, they'll seek out an ethnic church that worships in in their cultural style and speaks their language. Um, And so I think one of the ways that uh, maybe the majority culture church can be of a support is is really just to um, build friendships and partnerships with ethnic churches and with ethnic church leaders in order to come alongside and... um, learn and support some of the things that these churches are doing for outreach because it's going to be a lot easier for, let's say, um, uh, a, a Burmese mother who is in a Burmese church to, to reach uh, a refugee that's coming from Burma who's not a believer, who's maybe yeah. from a Muslim background. It's going to be a lot easier for her to connect w- with this other refugee than it will be for someone who speaks English uh, from America. That's excellent. I'll just wrap it up by saying this. And for this topic, and I'll try not to get on a soapbox, I have a personal passion when it comes to serving refugees in the community. And part of it is because it's my literal neighbors. It's where the Lord's placed me. And I'm very grateful for that. It wasn't intentional like Alex's. Alex has great intention in his life to get involved in this ministry. The Lord kind of thrust me into it in ways that I came to it late. And uh, I don't want to, I could literally talk for an hour about this, but the Lord's Uh, opportunity that he has afforded us in being a neighbor to someone who has come from something devastating. What an incredible opportunity. And for us, uh, for us, some of the ways that our church or me personally, sometimes it's just been meaning my house is a safe place to come and ask for help when there's some paperwork you don't understand. You need to get through the DMV or we've helped people get uh, navigate health insurance. We've helped people navigate, like I said, their calculator contract from school. We've just made our house an open door to our refugee friends, exchanged phone numbers with refugees. I got a text today from a man who moved here from Africa who's trying to uh, get uh, his license to be able to drive trucks. And he's texting me so excited that he's passing tests. And I'm trying to be a friend to him as he goes through that, not because he needs uh, some kind of white savior guy to enter and say, well, I've got it for you, but he needs a friend. We've helped people go on job interviews together or navigate different restaurants in, in our community that they don't understand how these companies work or what food work and where, where to work and where not to work. We've helped them navigate that. And we've, we've helped uh, funnel donations of furniture or income. And here's the encouragement I would give to any pastor or minister. Whether refugees are a local issue for you or not, whether refugees, I should say not an issue, there are people. Whether refugees live locally around you or not, there are ways for your church to get involved in refugee ministry. There's even organizations in Dallas that, sh- that host short-term trips of people to come and learn and to serve but knowing the agencies that are involved in this full-time, knowing the ethnic congregations where they already speak the language, know the culture, and can share the gospel, that's an important way to get involved as well. But more than anything, it's just an opportunity for us as a church, again, like Adam said, to be challenged to be the neighbors and be the friends that it, we're called to be since we're friends and followers of Jesus Christ. If there's anything you heard on the show that you'd like to know more about, you can find details on our website. Today's episode was produced by David Rorick and edited and mixed by Chris Starrett. If you like Culture Matters, please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you don't like us, please don't rate us and review us. We'll see you next time. God bless and thanks for listening.